A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And today, in honor of his recent yard site, we'll talk a little bit about um, a very famous Torah leader, Rav Shach, Rav Eloza Menachem Shach. Uh, but actually, I'm going to focus on the, the earlier part of his life, which is lesser well-known and in a certain way, even more interesting than his more famous uh, later part, where he was a leader, great Rosh Hashiv of Panovich, great leader, very much involved in Israeli uh, politics. That's We're going to leave uh, either for another time or for never. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, I want to focus today on Israelis. I want to start off with a story. Um, I go back... About five years, it was when I first started working in Yad Vashem. It was one of the first weeks I was there. And I'm in the hallway talking to a colleague in, in Yad Vashem. And someone passes by. Now, people are always passing by. It's a busy place. Someone in particular passed by. And the, my colleague who I was talking to said, Do you know who that is who just passed by? And I said, No, I mean, I'm kind of new here. I don't know most people. So he said, well, I imagine that you wouldn't know him, but you probably heard of his grandfather. He said, oh, so who is this fellow and who is his grandfather? He said, that was Doron Shach. So I got to see Doron Shach uh, for the first time, and he didn't exactly look like his grandfather, to say the least. Let's just put it that way. Um, I have seen him since then, over the past five years, a nice, very nice fellow. And um, it got me to think a little bit about, you know, we have a certain public persona, in general, of all great people. And then behind that persona, they're, they're, they're people, they're human beings, and want to know a little bit more about them and their personal life and their families. Um, so... You know, Rav Shach had a son. He had a, he had two daughters and a son. His one of his daughters died when he was still in 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 Lita in Lithuania, and he had a son and daughter who came with him to Eretz Yisrael. His son was a very famous fellow named Doctor Ephraim Shach, who died just a few years ago, and um, he 
took a slightly different path than his father. He lived in, in America for many years. He took an academic career, did a, a tremendous amount uh, for education, for other things. He won all sorts of awards and, and, and whatever. He had an interesting life himself. Um, but his son uh, works in Yad Vashem, Doron Shach, very different from the world of his of his grandfather. And just to, to round it out with another story, though going you know a few more years back, when I was first in the mirror, it was shortly after Rav Shach had passed away. He died in, in 2001. He had a very long life. And I was eating uh, Friday night by a, an elderly Stalin of Chassid in Yerushalayim, in, in, in near, near the mirror, in, in Beis Yisrael, wherever it was. I don't remember myself. And there was an elderly Stalin of Chassid. And someone brought up Rav Shach by the meal. And he, he said he remembered him from when he lived in Yerushalayim, when Rav Shach lived in Yerushalayim, before he became Rosh Hashiva and Bnei Brak. He was a Rebbe in Yerushalayim. His family lived there. We'll get to that, hopefully, uh, at a later point in this episode. And he, you know, looking, looking all nostalgic, this elderly Stalin Chassid says, Reblazer Shach is given a masmid. Reb Shach was a masmid, very studious and diligent in his studies, which, you know, it's a great thing to say about someone. It's not exactly the first thing that would come to mind when I would think about Reb Shach. I would think about a leader, I think about uh, very charismatic, a Gadol Hadar, a huge Talmud Chacham, a great uh, Rosh Hashiva and Magid Shir and the Panavish Yeshiva, all kinds of other things. It's not like the first thing I would think when I would come to his mind is that he was a masmid, which he was definitely was a tremendous masmid. Um, and this, and yet, when this elderly chassid remembered him from from uh, from Yerushalayim days, that's what came to mind. So again, it's another side of him from his pre-punavish, pre-leadership days, which is emphasized. Which is what I want to get to to round out um, his, his the person who he was. He had a very very long life. He was born in 1899. In other words, he's from the 19th century, and he died in 2001. In other words, the 21st century. So he, he had one year in, in, in two other centuries, and then 100 years of another. So he essentially spanned three centuries. He was 102 years old. It's very long. I remember his Leviathan. So I like caught the tail end of, of his life. And if we think about it, the two famous... Um, things that we, aspects of his life that we remember about him, both Panovich and his public leadership. He was 53 years old when he became a Rebbe in Panovich, and he was in his late 60s when he took on the mantle of leadership of the Lithuanian Torah world, especially in a political sense. So, you know, late 60s is when most people retire, right? And that's when he starts, his career starts. He also did something that no one else did, to the best of my knowledge, almost, maybe almost no other great Torah leader, Gadol leader did, he retired when he was in his mid-90s. And uh, he decided he was too old and he liked being very on top of things himself. He didn't like trusting others with doing the research for him. He was very much on top of uh, everything that went on. And when he felt he was too old and weak or sick, 
and uh, it was too difficult for him to, to take the responsibility of leadership, he officially retired. He made a pronouncement that he's no longer going to uh, maintain the, the positions that he, that, he, that he did until that point. So the entire span of his leadership was about 25 to 30 years, which is a nice amount of time. But in the great scheme of things, if he lived for over 100 years, it's essentially less than a third of his life. So I'll talk a little bit about his pre-leadership and pre-Panavish uh, life and world. He, he learned in several yeshivas. He had many rebbeim. He had a lot of exposure. And through his life, we can actually get a little bit of a view of the Litvisha pre-World War I and, of course, pre-World War II world. He, he taught as a Rebbe, in no less than nine different yeshivas before he came to Panovich. And he almost was a Rebbe in three other ones, which would have made it 12. He had, you know, he lived in all sorts of different places. He even lived in the Mir for a short period of time. He really covered a wide range of places. And it's interesting, on my trips, when we tour the Litvish and sometimes even certain Polish areas, and since Rav Shach is a famous name and people have heard of him, so it's a good reference to make to, as a connection for people that they might they might relate to, uh, especially if I'm bringing yeshiva guys. And there's so many places where I could say, oh, Rav Shach spent a period of time here and there's a connection. So, you know, he comes up on, on uh, quite a few places on the tours. He's actually born in a small Litvish shtetl called Vaboilnik. And um, his father was, was a, a simple Jew. He was a flour merchant. His mother actually came from a rabbinic family. They related to great uh, the Levitans, which was a great Litvish rabbinic, Lithuanian rabbinic family. But one, of the, but probably the first rebbe that the Rav Shach had was the Rav in Vabelnik, a fascinating person. His name was Rabbi Huda Leib Ferrer, Forer, not sure how to pronounce that, who who was a huge Talmud Chacham and big rabbi in Lithuania. He had studied. At the Tel's yeshiva, he had also been a close student of Reb Chaim Brisker, and he was a Rebbe of Shach. Rav Shach spoke about him quite often and, and with an awe, uh, spoke very highly of him. Uh, Rebbe Huda Leib Farer was later the rabbi of Holyoke, Massachusetts, for a quarter of a century. For the last tw- <coughs> excuse me, 25 or so years of his life, he died in 1948. He he was famous in in Lithuania for his love and his excitement for Torah. Uh, when Rav Shach spent some about over a year and a half in the Slabatki Yeshiva by the altar of Slabatka, so Rabbi Yehuda Leib would sometimes they called him actually Rabbi Label Prajiner because he came from Prajan, another town in Lita near Brisk, and. Um, and uh, when, when Reb Label Prajina would come to Slobodka, he would walk straight into the base Medrash and start talking to the guys and learning. He always had a very exciting atmosphere about him and got everyone riled up when he spoke to them. People loved him. And uh, he, when Rav Shach returned to Vabayelnik at the beginning of World War I, Rav Shach had studied in the Panevish Yeshiva by Rav It's funny that... One of the first places, maybe the first place, he was actually only 10 years old when he went, Panovich is not far from Vabayolik, it's right near it, but uh, the first place that Rav Shach 
learned in would be the name of the yeshiva that eventually his his entire identity came to be identified with, the Panavish Yeshiva in Bnei Brak. But here is by Rabbi Itzel He learned in Slabatka later on, and then during World War One, he returned to Vabayonik. He left Slabatka, as most of the people in the yeshiva did. Only a small contingent of the yeshiva escaped with them into into deep into Russia and later the Ukraine, Kremenchum. But um, he returns to Vabayonik. And there was a group of yeshiva guys who were stuck in Vabelnik. And the Rav, Rabbi Yehudalei Farer, he starts a yeshiva, a kind of like ad hoc yeshiva for anyone who was stuck there. And Rav Shach studied with him and became very close with him during this time. He later, at the end, he didn't even know after Rabbi Yehudalei Farer had passed away, Rav Shach hadn't heard, and he sent him his sefer Avi Ezri, and he inscribed it, and he wrote a letter to him. I remember with such fondness the shiurim that you gave in Masechus Nadarim, and 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 how much you gave to us. It was he was a big paisik in America. Also, he gave shiurim at at Yeshiva University or Benitzkochan at the time. He was also uh, he was involved in Yeshiva of Chaim Berlin. He gave smicha to the graduates at Chaim Berlin. He was very involved in American rabbinic life, and like I said, he was the rabbi at Holyoke, Massachusetts. So there you go, an, an American Litvisha Rav who is not so well remembered, and now his claim to fame is that he was the rabbi of, uh, of Rav Shach. And eventually, at some point during World War I, Rav Shach moves to the yeshiva in Slutsk, he eventually marries the Slutsk, excuse me, the, marries the Rosh Yeshiva of Slutsk's niece, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, um, and uh, he moves with his with his wife, with Rabbi Zalman also, at the after World War One, after the communists made it difficult to sustain the yeshiva there, they moved to they jumped the border back into Poland uh, to Kletsk. He actually moved to the Mir at this point, uh, to be near his father in law, uh, which was quite common in those days. And now that he was in Poland he had the opportunity to do so. And then he got a relationship with the Mir, the Rav of the Mir, Rav Ram Tzvi Kamai. He, he loved forging relationships with the great leaders of his day. And there's almost unparalleled the amount of uh, connections and and great gedolim that he had a personal connection to. It's uh, almost unparalleled. Very close with the Chaim Gajenski, and he met the Chavetz Chaim several times, and the Arsameach, and and uh, you know it just goes on and on. He. He tried getting to know Reb Chaim Brisker, and he wasn't that successful, but he was very, very close with his son, the Briskerov, one of the closest people with his son, the Briskerov. Amazing variety of, uh, or amount, I don't know if it was a variety, but the amount, they're all Litvish Rabbanim, uh, amount of, uh, of great G'dayli Yisrael that he had and forged a personal connection to. He also loved, especially in his later years, telling stories about that. Um, and uh, I don't know if he loved history per se, but he definitely loved telling, relating the, the stories, especially about the per- people who he knew and uh, that he had a connection with. And he wanted to relate that and kind of give it over to the next generation, because especially in his later years, he felt that he was a connection to that world that, uh, that, that, that almost no one else had, especially at his age. And, uh, and, uh, and he tried to give that over. Um, after a short time in the mirror, he goes back to Kletsk, and he's a Rebbe in Kletsk. He actually had become a Rebbe in Slutsk towards the end of world, uh, sh- shortly after World War One in 1920. He became a Rebbe in Slutsk, 
and he was still single at the time, it was before he even got married. Um, and he continued on as a Rebbe after he got married, even with the short break in the mirror, he comes back to Kletzk, he's on the faculty or the staff, he has put off, he's offered positions in other yeshivas. Allegedly, he even was offered the position to become the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivas Chachme Lublin after Mayor Shapiro uh, passed away. Um, it's a hard to say how serious the candidacy was because in a Hasidish Yeshiva, they almost for sure were going to give it to someone who was Hasidish, which they did. Um, but there, we know from, from other sources that there were other candidates who were Litvish, so it definitely is plausible. He was offered a position of the Rosh Hashiva in Brisk. Um, later on, in 1940, when Rav Shimon Shkup passed away, uh, in, then in 1939, Rav Shach was actually offered uh, that position. Those three positions didn't work out, but there were other positions that did. He became uh, a Rebbe in the, one of the Ravardic branches for a short period of time. And one of his most interesting positions, still back in Europe, was in a Hasidic yeshiva. The great Karlina Rebbe before the war was Avram Elimelech Perlau. Um, there were several branches of Karlin, Karlin and Stalin, and that, that general vicinity. And um, and the main one, the largest one, was Avram Elimelech, also a great leader. He was very close with a lot of the other Hasidic Rebbes and Litvish leaders of its day. Karlin was a Litvish Hasidist. A great man also. He he encouraged, like all the Karlina Rebbe's, for his Hasidim to settle in Eretz Yisrael, and he would visit them. And he actually visited them in the summer of 1939. There's even a picture of him a couple of weeks before he left, descending the steps to go down to the Kaisel um, on Erev Shabbos on Friday afternoon. And this is just weeks before World War II breaks out. And he decides to go back, as war is already breaking out, basically. And the Hasidim tell him, you're with a lot of your Hasidim in Yerushalayim, with us. Just stay. There's war there. And he said, but the majority of my Hasidim are back there. And he picks himself up from Eretz Yisrael during wartime and goes back. And it's an amazing story. And he eventually gets killed. He's murdered by the Nazis. He's a victim of the Holocaust, along with all the Karlina Hasidim. And the only ones who are left are a small group in Yerushalayim. And uh, that's that's definitely a, a great story. Um, but he has a yeshiva. He's a yeshiva in Lunitz. And Lunitz is right near where the Karlina Rebbe himself lived. And he, like I said, this Rav Ram Elimelech was close to the Chaim Moizer. And he was able to get Rav Shach to become the Rosh Yeshiva there. So this arch Litvak, who was famous as a Litvak in many, many ways, especially in his later years, and uh, and whatever goes along with that uh, with connotation, he's a Rosh Hashiva and a Chassid Hashiva, and he's very popular and close with the Bacharim. And he has some issues with them leaving uh, for Yantiv to go to the Rebbe too much, too early. They don't come back right away. You know, there was friction there. There was tension, but at the same time, he he was he 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 did it. You know, someone pointed out, yeah, but that was a Litvish Chassidus. It wasn't, you know. Uh, 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 Polish or Hungarian Hasidus, and I'm always quick to respond to that, that later in life he had issues with a different Litvish Hasidus. So it has nothing to do with which Hasidus it was from. He definitely uh, was able to to lead and teach Torah to Hasidim just as well. Now, 
His daughter died, like I said, um, uh, at one point. He still has a son and another daughter. Um, he escapes to Vilna along with a group of Bachrim from the Lunin's yeshiva. He hooks up with the Kletsk yeshiva again. You know, he had a recurring relationship almost throughout his life uh, with Kletsk. He had taught in Slutsk and then in Kletsk and then he left and then he came back to Kletsk and then now in Vilna he moves up to the where Kletsk had run away to, to Yanova, and he again was teaching in Kletsk until January 1941, where he manages to make it with his family to Eretz Yisrael. His first position in Eretz Yisrael is actually in the Yishuv HaChadash of Rabbi Moshe Avigdor Amiel. Also a famous rabbinic personality, a fascinating person. He had learned in Tells and in Malch by Rabbi Zalman Sender Kahana, later Rabbi Shimon Shkap. He had been close with Rabbi Chaim Eizer Grzynski. He had known Bar Sameach and many other great leaders. And this Rabbi Moshe Avigdor Amiel was a rav in a town in Lita, in Lithuania, in Shvincian, and later in Antwerp. But he comes and he becomes the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv in 1936. Now there are three candidates for the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv in 1936. The other two were Rav Solveitschik and Rav Herzog. And he, this Rav Meshav Igdor Amiel, beat out the other two candidates. Right? Rav Solveitschik eventually becomes the great rabbinical leader in America, and Rav Herzog eventually becomes the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael. But Rav Meshav Igdor Amiel won the candidacy to become the rabbi in Tel Aviv, and he founds a yeshiva called the Yeshiva Chadash. Rav Meshav Igdor Amiel was a religious Zionist. He was part of the Mizrahi. And Rav Zalman Meltzer encourages Rav Shach to take a position as being a rabbi in the yeshiva. A year before that, when Rav Chaim Eizer was still alive, Rav Chaim Eizer had suggested and recommended Rav Shach to Rav Amiel uh, to become a rabbi in his yeshiva. And Rav Shach takes the position. Shortly afterwards, he leaves the position because of pressure from the Chazayin Ish, who said, you're teaching in a Zionist yeshiva, it's inappropriate, which is an interesting dynamic here at play. Rabbi Chaim Eizer, who he had been very close with, and Rabbi Zalman, who was his uncle and his rabbi, his mentor, also was very close with They had encouraged him to take the position. And the Chazanish, who he became very close with subsequently, but at this point, it was not yet that very close with him, and said no, and he listened to him. So you have an interesting, uh, interesting dynamic at play. And he eventually, he leaves and he becomes a Rebbe in the, the Navardic Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Sian Brook, who was a student of the altar of Navardic, um, had a Navardic Yeshiva in Yerushalayim that was open to everyone. And to encourage that it should be open to everyone, this Navardic Yeshiva had Shiurim in Hebrew, which was almost unheard of at the time. The Shir Klali was still in Yiddish. But the shiurim were in Hebrew, the daily shir, which was almost unheard of. Kol Taira was going to be the first yeshiva that officially had it. But here, the small Navardic yeshiva had it, and therefore, there were Svardic Bachrim in the yeshiva. And, uh, and, and then Rav Shach became a rabbi there, and he gave shiurim in Hebrew, which he didn't know. He didn't even know Hebrew at that time. It was during these years that he became extremely close with the Briskarov, who he had already known previously. He left a couple of years after that, and he became a Rebbe in the Lamji Yeshiva in Petach Tikva. And he's there for five years, from 1944 to 1949. In 1949, he goes back to Kletsk again. This is like the fourth time. 
There was another yeshiva founded by um, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Meltzer, who was Rabbi Shazal Meltzer's son, and who was a little more Zionistic. And he started a yeshiva in Pardes Chana in Israel called Kletsk. Because Kletsk, it was still a branch of Kletsk when it, uh, it was actually officially a branch of Kletsk in Europe when it started. Or Mrs. Zalman, his father, had founded Slutsk and Kletsk. So he was continuing. He's Rav Aaron Cutler's brother-in-law, who was the Rosh Hashiva in Kletsk at the time. And here he starts a branch of Kletsk. He moved it from Pardes Chana to Rehovot. And he invites his cousin, Rav Shach, to become a Rebbe there. So he becomes the Rebbe in Kletsk Rehovot for three years. Kletsk Rehovot is an interesting story. It's a quasi-Zionist yeshiva. It eventually it comes together with Yeshivat Hadarom, which still exists today. And I think it's even still in Rehovot, if I'm not mistaken. And it's really Kletsk. It's a, it's, 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 and it's Reb the Meltzer. And Reb Shach is there for three years until he comes to Panovich. He later was a Rebbe. Even while he was in Panovich, he was a Rebbe in Eitzchai. You have to understand that when he was a Rebbe in Panovich, he was an employee. It was never his yeshiva. People seem to, to connect the two. As Rav Shach is Panovich, and Panovich was Rav Shach. Panovich is the Kahaneman family, not Rav Shach. Rav Shach was an employee hired by the Kahanamans to be a Rebbe and later Rosh Hashiva in Panovich. That was in 1952. He's also Rebbe in Eitzchayim in Yerushalayim. Um, Rav Shach, it's also not, not, not as well known. But I'll end off with another almost, that he be, almost became uh, Rosh Hashiva in another place. And this ends off the amazing pre-Panavish career, or this is actually already during the Panavish career of Rav Shach. In 1962, ten years after he became a Rebbe in Panavish, Rav Aaron Cutler, Rashiva of Lakewood in America, passed away. Now, oh, this is a story for another time, but there was a bit of a conflict about who should replace Rav Aaron, especially since Rav Aaron is irreplaceable, so who's going to become the Rosh Hashiva? And Rav Shach, who was involved at this point, he said, I will, I can become the Rosh Hashiva. And he would be accepted by all parties involved. Now, in retrospect, it's like almost unheard of. What would Israel, what would the Haredi community in Israel would have looked like if Rav Shach in 1962, before he reached any position of leadership in Israel, he would have moved to America to become Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. You could also speculate what would America have looked like if he had come to Lakewood. But the question is why? Why was he thinking of doing that? So again, in Panovich he was just an employee. But there's more to it there. This was his entire career until this point was again and again and again coming back to Kletsk. In his mind's eye, Rabaran Cutler is Kletsk. Lakewood is a reincarnation of Kletsk. For him it's just coming again, maybe the fifth time, back to becoming a Rebbe, Rosh Hashiva, in Kletsk. So it was something that he considered seriously. It didn't work out in the end. Of course, Rav Shneir Cutler became the Rosh Hashiva. That's a story for another time. But Rav Shach multifaceted his exposure to so many people, so many institutions, teaching Tyra everywhere, Talmidim that he had in all these yeshivas, and his influence was amazingly far-reaching even before he stepped foot in Panovich. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, and of course for tours and trips throughout Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.